all the latest updates on your local and regional sports. This is Sports Talk on 92 WICB Ithaca. Good evening, everybody, and welcome into the 2022 premiere of WICB Sports Talk, your home for the latest sports news, scores, and storylines from the Ithaca area. I'm your host, Dane Richardson. Tonight, we have a very special episode featuring recently named ESPN Sunday Night Baseball play-by-play announcer and Ithaca alum Carl Ravitch and Cornell and Team Canada's women's hockey coach, Doug DeRoe. Despite Major League Baseball in a standstill due to a lockout, that doesn't stop the networks from announcing their tandems. A few weeks ago, Ithaca College alum Carl Ravitch was named the next voice of ESPN's flagship baseball telecast, Sunday Night Baseball. WICB's own Max Tanzer, Matt Sossler, and Tommy Mumaw chatted with the new voice to discuss the recent news as well as the current state of Major League Baseball. Thank you, Dane. Once again, Max Tanzer joined alongside Matt Sossler and Tommy Muma. Today, we welcome in a very special guest here to Sports Talk in Carl Ravitch, who is an Ithaca alum and was recently named the play-by-play broadcaster for ESPN Sunday Night Baseball. Mr. Ravitch, congratulations and thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you guys very much. It's great to be on and talking with the future of uh, broadcasting at Ithaca College and then beyond. It's a delight to be on with you and Thanks very much. I'm very much looking forward to what this uh, new team will be on Sunday night. For sure. So let's get things started here. I mean, first things first, how does it feel to be on Sunday Night Baseball now? Yeah, so I'm guessing it hasn't really struck me yet. I'm in the middle of college basketball season. Um, So I don't necessarily think that it's hit me. I know Eduardo described it as uh, kind of a a dream of his to be able to do it. I'm, I'm sure as we get closer to the season, Whenever that season is, uh, it will hit me that ESPN now has one game a week and it's Sunday and I get a chance to be calling it alongside David and Eduardo, that it will hit me. So I'm, I'm guessing I'm, I'm kind of numb to it a little bit. I'm a little focused now on basketball, but um, I, I, it doesn't diminish the honor of calling that. I think I'm the fourth person to ever do it. Um, so it's, it's, it's incredibly exciting. It's 30 years in the making. It's a lot of baseball that I've covered over the years, uh, Little League, college, you know, baseball games the last couple of years, Korean baseball, uh, about four in the morning for a year when we were going through COVID. So it's, uh, it's, it's quite the reward, and I'm, I'm honored to do it and, and looking forward to it. You mentioned Korean baseball, and going back through what has been, at this point, almost two years throughout this pandemic, it's uh, – been a lot especially in the sports world the broadcasting world and for you especially you were on the air when everything got canceled you were in Nashville doing the SEC tournament when Greg Sankey decided to at that point postpone and then eventually cancel those games down in Nashville and for you that started the start of what was I would call revolutionary in terms of sports broadcasting that and then Korean baseball where you had a song written about you uh just to take me through the past year, year and a half, two years, progressing through the pandemic from a broadcasting perspective. <laughs> um, unique, for sure. Um, I remember talking to Greg Sankey, who's the commissioner of the SEC, the day that they decided to pull the plug on the SEC tournament in Nashville just before a game started. Um, you know, and that was sort of the be- that was the beginning for at least us. It certainly was something that 
people were aware of, but that was the beginning for us with regards to how dramatically life was going to change. I don't think then we had any idea. Um, you know, and the, the KBO broadcast came as a result of, of literally not having, you know, major league games here and a sports network needing sports. And look, ESPN is rooted in sports such as Australian rules football and uh, America's cup overnight and all sorts of, at the at the start, fringe sports, but people were so into this concept of, oh, my gosh, it's sports, it's a competition, it's on TV, I'll watch it. it. It really didn't necessarily matter in the beginning what the sport was. It was just very cool. So the KBO, you know, served to, to fill a void during during a time in which there were no sports really being played in this country. Um, you know, and I remember having a production crew come to my house, and at one point we were throwing – uh, extension cords over the roof of my house and then plugging them in where the studio was so that it would work. So, I mean, I, I understand Christmas lights being on people's homes and you get used to wires, but we had plugs hanging over the roof in order to make this work. Um, and a, you know, a quick story on the first broadcast that we ever did, we were supposed to come on the air at 525 in the morning with a game being broadcast from Korea and around five o'clock, the game that we were scheduled to do, we found out was being rained out. We don't, I, I clearly don't know anything about Korean baseball, let alone the players that are playing in the game, but I did have rosters. Uh, so at five o'clock, they say, rather than doing this game, we're going to go do another game. <laughs> and I'm barely awake. And I say, well, wait a minute, we, we can't do that. We don't even know who the people that are playing. So I rolled into uh, my office and printed names that are, that are on the other rosters and, and came back into my office at about 5.25 where I'm broadcasting from. I hear Eduardo Perez say, welcome to the KBO. And for some reason, I had forgotten that we actually started our broadcast at 5.25 instead of 5.30. You know, usually you start broadcasts on the hour, if not the half hour. So he actually welcomed America to the KBO for the very first time because I was grabbing rosters of two teams that I had no idea uh, we were going to be broadcasting. So that, that's how the whole thing got off the ground. And if you, know, if you consider that getting off the ground, then it was a success. And as you touched on, whether they were making songs about us, it was really a neat and unforgettable experience. I, I, will, I will never forget it. The feedback that we got over the course of the entire season was incredible. Um, whether it was people eating breakfast with their kids because they were home, there was just a real neat, neat uh, dynamic that that became of it because of what we were doing. That you would, when it was proposed, had no idea. Like no one's going to watch this. This is never going to work. And it had kind of a small cult following. And you know, honestly, guys, it it led to what what is now um, very much the way that a lot of broadcasts are done, which is from remote sites, whether it's people's homes or studios. Uh, that was that was one of the first to ever do that. In fact. These kits that we all have in our homes now are called LFH or Live from Home Kits. And as I looked at mine, it said LFH001. It's the first one that was ever put into anybody's home at ESPN. And it's currently sitting in my house as I get set to call a game Saturday between LSU and Arkansas from my house. Yeah, you mentioned the Live from Home, doing games from home, and you've done them both you've done them from the stadium you've done them from your house 
briefly describe the difference, the pros, the cons, a preference maybe on what that's been like? Well, I'll start with the pros. A, it enables you to do it. I mean, <laughs> there's nothing more important than actually being able to do the game. So we, we entered a world in which nobody was traveling. Um, you know, there was a virus that was, that was worldwide, and yet we were able to sit in our, in our houses and take a feed from another country and broadcast it in this country. Like, the whole thing is, is really hard to wrap your head around, but we would get a feed from Korea, and we would use our headsets and our monitors and, and call the game so people in the United States could hear it. So clearly the biggest plus is it enabled us to do it. Um, there are all sorts of challenges. It's, there's nothing like being at the game. I know my son Sam does games, and look, baseball is uniquely challenging. You, you're looking at a monitor that's showing, you know, for the most part, uh, the pitcher, the batter, and the catcher. So a guy hits a ball hard up the middle. You don't really know where the infield is. You can't see whether they're shifted. And certainly in the beginning of the live from home, you had no clue. We, we've, we've, we've really made strides. I don't know that we'll ever perfect it. But now within the monitor, you can see an all nine fielders. So you, you can now, you know, cater your call with a lot more information than we used to. Um, but again, the basketball games, you, you don't see the crowd. You don't necessarily see the reaction. You don't see the action that's, that's on one end of the court when somebody's running a fast break on the other and whether there's a player injured unless you're there. And th those, are, those are some of the challenges. But I'll tell you one thing. Uh, the plus of being able to actually do the game far outweighs any of the challenges or the negatives. What would you have told yourself in college uh, if you knew that you would be broadcasting a program like Sunday Night Baseball? Yeah, I, I you know I don't know how you three operate or if you've got um, kind of roadmaps as to how you see the future. I I did it. I did it a little differently. I mean, my son is not far removed from Pepperdine University and, and doing what, what you guys were doing in college. And he went a different route. He, he chose to sort of follow the play-by-play -play route and went to work for a minor league baseball team. So I would think to answer your question, if somebody said you're going to do Sunday night baseball, you're graduating college in 1987, and in 2021 you're going to, 2022, you're going to call Sunday Night Baseball. Uh, I I probably would have said I don't even know what I don't know what Sunday Night Baseball is. I've never heard of it. Um, and even if I even if, if it had existed in 1987, the likelihood that I was watching it would probably be very slim. Um, I was not necessarily a huge viewer of sports on television. Uh, certainly, while in college, I wasn't. We were busy doing sports on TV or radio, so it just never never would have been something that I would have been aware of. But, I mean, the valuable lesson to you guys and anyone else in, in our position at that age is there is no roadmap. I mean, you may, have, you may have dreams. Mine was to get a job somewhere in a local television market doing sports, you know, on the weekends or weekdays. That was, that was the goal. And that ended up happening in downtown Ithaca at a cable, cable news center seven, which – uh, to the best of my knowledge, I don't know that anybody actually received the signal. <laughs> we may have been doing it for ourselves. I don't even know. Um, but, no, Sunday Night Baseball or ESPN or any of those things, if somebody said that then, 
I would have had the reaction I did when you just brought it up. I would have laughed a little bit. Like I, I don't, I'm not sure what language you guys are all speaking, but you're telling me about that. You may as well say you're going to go into a rocket and go to the moon. It never, never occurred to me at that stage. Over the last few decades, it seems that baseball fans have been separated into different categories in a way where you have fans who are heavy on analytics, fans who want to be more traditional, fans who might not be, you know, as big as baseball fans, maybe watching more casually. As a broadcaster, how have you approached this separation when calling games in the last few years? And now that you have an even larger audience, will that change at all? Yeah, I've been asked this a couple of times, you know, whether I'm going to do anything differently. And you know, I, I, I think I have to be comfortable and confident in what it is that I have done that has that has allowed me to be considered and put into this position, meaning in a sense, look, we, we like what you've done enough that we want to con- you to continue doing what it is you're doing. There's a reason that we selected you to work with these two guys because we like what you do. I don't think that their goal is to put me in the position in hopes that I would change because then that would defeat the purpose of elevating me from the weekday games that we had last year to this position. So I've answered it this way. I'm I'm not going to change what I do because I think sometimes when people ask that, there's this implication that you, well, you should, <laughs> you have to. Um, it's good, but it's not great. And it may not work on that stage. And I'm not certain, you know, I, I wouldn't agree with that. I like the way that I do the games. I, I'm probably more conversational um, than than many of the people that do your strict play-by-play. But I've also, you know, called Little League World Series games and championships for a long time. And I, I've done the College World Series in 2009. Um, I trust my instincts to know when we've got to zero in on the action on the field right now. It's, you know, it's a close game late where this is a big situation in the third inning to drill down on the real baseball part of it. But you get into a blowout, um, you know, and it's nine to one after the first inning. I, I don't think people want to hear me describe Jacob DeGrom's fastball very much when it's an eight run game and DeGrom is coming out of the game. Like we got we to gotta be able to pivot a little bit and still talk baseball. But gosh, I got a multi-World Series winner in David Cohn who's pitched in a variety of different cities. I have Eduardo Perez, whose uh, who's sense of humor and personality and clubhouse um, capabilities and his bench coaching and his hitting instructing and his working with Barry Bonds and his dad's a Hall of Famer and played for the Reds. Like there's, there's so much information and a pool of, of knowledge that these guys can share, you know, it's kind of incumbent on me to pick their brains about things related to baseball that I think the viewer would be more interested in than, you know, what, what Dom Smith is doing in an eight run game in the third inning. So I'm not, I don't intend on changing. I'm going to be true to who I am, which is to rely heavily on my analysts to have fun with it. Sometimes I think we lose sight of the fact that it's sports. It's There's a lot of other serious stuff, some of which we've talked about already, to keep it all in perspective. Um, and also, you know, I'm not, we're not running from, I got two guys that are, that are analytics, you know, happy. They love that stuff. And look, there's a real place for it. 
teams use it. We better be able to speak that language and help our folks at home understand what language it is, how they use spin rate, and how these technological advances are being put to use, and and how a pitcher is setting up a hitter, and sometimes how a hitter is setting up a pitcher. Uh, all those things, you know, need need to be included as opposed to excluded. And I think ESPN knows that when you have uh, myself, Pony, and Eduardo, there are three people who are very open to those types of conversations as opposed to being dismissive of them. So long-winded answer, I'm not going to change, but I'm very aware of uh, the different aspects of baseball that weren't there in 1987, 1997 even. Yeah, you mentioned no change. Another thing that at least I would consider is uh, not changing or at least progressing would be the current situation in Major League Baseball with the lockout. Uh, Owners and players uh, did uh, meet finally earlier, and based on reports, uh, there really hasn't been much progress, but... This has been going on. There really hasn't been a whole lot to talk about with this uh, since it started in early December. But what are some of your initial thoughts on this whole situation? Well, it's look, it's it's discouraging. I've covered many of these. I was chasing owners around the streets of New York City in 1994, trying to get answers to questions. Um, It's frustrating. Um, There, there, I think is. a real, a real angst from fans who look at the two sides and say to themselves, "Are you kidding me? Like, you, you know, you, you've you've really done a lot of damage to your game over the years, the sport of baseball relative to the NFL or basketball is not as popular or relevant as it once was, and you guys are sitting here." Uh, having kind of this public discourse and disagreement and that's not a great offer and we don't really consider it substantive. All, all the types of language that is so off-putting um, to further drive people away from a game that you, you ideally would want them to come back to and embrace. So it's very, very frustrating. You know, every time there's a, there's a work stoppage or an agreement is coming to an end, you say to yourself, I certainly do, can you all just go lock yourselves in a room? Don't come out until you figure out how to move forward with an agreement. It obviously never happens that way. There's a whole bunch of posturing and dancing that goes on here. And that's that's the stage we're at. Um, you, you wish that you wish that there was a greater acknowledgement from both sides to say we, we have to get this done uh, for the sake of the sport for the sake of the fans and for our own sake. Um, but they don't seem to, they don't seem to recognize, uh, you know, that, that, that what we think is desperation. Like you guys are making a, you know, you're going to make a mess of this again. I, I don't know. Think about a, a child who's, who spills chocolate milk and then, then the child gets cake and they spill that. And then you give them pizza and that falls on the floor. Like it's just sort of a steady grip of of what I think the fan would look at as saying miscalculations. Why, why are you why are you doing this? In the end, sure, there'll be a deal. When will that happen? I don't have any faith that it happens before the season because they the honest they have given you no faith to think that way. 
the long, long ago feeling like this is going to work out and they'll get it done, we, that went away in 1994. You know, that, that fell apart when we lost the World Series. So uh, my answer to that question is I'm never surprised by how frustrating and painful this process is. I uh, wish it were different, but it's it's not. And, you know, I, I don't blame people for getting turned off by the whole thing. It's It's really... It's really remarkable. Most of us deal with relationships and teachers and professors and friends and roommates, and you work it out. It doesn't usually get to this level where the first idea is dismissed and the second idea is thrown away and the third idea is looked on like that's not really serious. I have I, never met some group that operates that way. Definitely, and I know you spoke to this a little bit, but it seems that the relationship between Tony Clark and the owners is one of the biggest obstacles in these negotiations. Do you see that relationship improving anytime soon? I think that's, I mean, look, it's all about the people that are in that chair. I mean, you know, sadly, uh, Michael Weiner, who was running the negotiations for the players prior to his death, uh, had a great relationship, and, and things did go well. I mean, the these deals have come together. There was, there was a significant period of what would be called labor peace. I just go back to 94 when it was a dumpster fire. And that, that's, that's my frame of reference. I, I've, you know, I've seen this play before. There's nothing new about, about this other than the fact that Bruce Meyer has been brought in to negotiate for the players. And Bruce Meyer may have, um, an opinion that the goal here is to win back many of the concessions that have been made over the years. I think Major League Baseball recognizes that things have changed, that we need to we need to give some things to the players now because of, as we've discussed, analytics. Younger players are playing quicker. Six-year free agency doesn't work anymore. It's not fair to the player. The landscape has changed, and now the agreement has to reflect the change in the landscape. But neither side, in my opinion, can go into a negotiation with the idea that we're going to come out and, and in the end, we win and they lose. Like, that won't work. And I'm a little concerned that, that currently, today, the feeling is we, we've got to make up so much ground that until we start to feel like we're winning or the scales are tipping in our favor that it won't get done. And that's, that's my concern. So, you know, that doesn't mean it doesn't change. It doesn't mean that they don't come to an agreement and there's labor peace for the next 15 years. But I can tell that getting there this time is going to be a pain. Now you've talked to Rob Manford during labor negotiations before based on that, how does that impact your confidence that a deal will get done in the near future? Well, I mean, Manfred historically has been a pretty good deal maker. I think his his interest is in making a deal, but you know, Rob Manfred works for the commissioners. Uh, work, works for the owners. He's the commissioner of the owners. He's the commissioner of the sport. But like Bud Selig was an owner who became a commissioner. You know, Rob is. Rob represents the owners in this. Uh, they may mask it, and he represents baseball, uh, but he represents the owners, and he's negotiating, or his team is negotiating 
from an owner's perspective. Not, not. I don't think uh, if you were to if you were to list the priorities that the game of baseball would be number one in his world. The owners are number one. The game of baseball is number two. So, with that as as the as the relationship between the commissioner and the owners, um, regardless of what type of deal maker he is, and I think he's sincere and genuine and wants to make a deal, but he wants to make a deal that you know that favors the owners or doesn't hurt the owners. You could then, I'm sure, he'd make the case. Well, if I hurt the owners, I'm hurting the game. We could go around in circles forever about that. That's that's one of those. You're in quicksand. You're just going to keep falling down the rabbit hole. So, look, I, I, I'm confident that he's he's got a got the ability to make deals. He historically has. He was Seelig's deal maker. It, it worked. But the new dynamic of, of Bruce Meyer being in there and what his objective objectives are versus what Rob's objectives are, that that's why we're where where we're at. I, I do think that Rob is unfairly criticized for some of his ideas with regards to rule changes and the comments he's made, et cetera, et cetera. I think he, I think he recognizes the sport needs to evolve. And I think sometimes the purists and the diehards get frustrated by some of his, his ways of thinking. I don't, I'm, I'm more in line with the way he thinks about many things with regards to rules and uh, the way the game is, is played. So at this point, is the biggest change that needs to be made the fact that the owners need to give more back to the players? Yeah, and I think they recognize that. I mean, I you know even today's re- report was about was about getting more money to players you know in their early years. That that's that's a fundamental uh, piece of where this game is. You know, Juan Soto is 20 years old. We you can't wait for six more years to pay the guy. He's as valuable as anybody in baseball. So, you know, that, that has to change. And there's a recognition that that has to change. You know, David Cohn was very involved and has been involved historically with negotiations when he was part of the union. He looked at it a little differently this time. He, he thinks that the two sides, if you were to, to have the concentric circle, they're aware of, of where they need to dance. They, they know the subjects that need to be addressed. In, in years past, it, it, it was both sides sort of speaking two different languages. I think both sides realize where that gray area is, where they gotta, they got to make their move. So that part is encouraging. To, to, what, to what degree they're willing to venture into that gray area and meet is really the, the, the question. You know, I, I think they all are aware of what, what has to has to be adjusted? The question is, can they can they get there? Can the adjustments be agreed on? Once again, the new play-by-play man for ESPN Sunday Night Baseball, Carl Ravitch. Mr. Ravitch, thank you so much for joining us today. As fellow Bombers, we are so proud you've earned this opportunity. We can't wait to listen to you this season, and hopefully we get baseball back soon. Amen to that, boys. Thank you guys very much. Best of luck to uh, you guys on the South Hill. I, I appreciate it, and I'm proud to represent Ithaca in the booth.
Thanks, guys. Interesting thoughts from Ravitz saying he doesn't believe the season will begin on time. I know a lot of baseball fans are longing for their favorite sport to return. Still a lot of free agents out there, such as shortstops Carlos Correa and Trevor Story. Could be a lot of action in Major League Baseball once the lockout is finished. We will have an interview with Canada women's hockey coach Doug DeRoe coming on up. But first, here's a look at the past week for teams at Ithaca College. Ithaca women's basketball completed a two-game weekend sweep over Skidmore and Union. On Friday, the Bombers had an explosive second half, resulting in a 64-46 victory. Grace Cannon led the way with 10 points and 9 rebounds as the Bombers won their sixth contest in a row to maintain pace for the top spot in the Liberty League. WICB sideline reporter Jaden Becker caught up with Cannon following the win. Bombers come out on top here in Ben Light. And this one of the first games back where you have really fans in attendance here in this one and a big crowd here at that. How are you feeling having those fans back? I think it's good to have everyone back. I know the environment feels a little different. I mean, we've been here since late December and like we got some empty gyms. Luckily, our parents have been able to show up. But with the new spectator rule, it's good that we have such good support on campus. And it was really good to get this win. How are you feeling about this Bombers team so far this season? You had some ups, you had some downs, but there's been a constant focus on moving forward and getting some wins. So uh, how do you feel about this Bomber team so far? I think, honestly, our mental toughness has really improved. We had a couple shaky starts in the beginning, a little like not playing to our potential, but we've gotten down big. We were down here today in the first quarter. We were down big against St. Lawrence, but we've been able to recollect ourselves, come together, and push out some key wins. We have so much young talent and just like so much potential, but when we all play together and we have even scoring like we did tonight, we're really hard to stop. Yeah, I just want to talk about you here a little bit. Uh, we saw you today in this game, had put up a couple shots, and then the basket falls, and you look towards your teammates you almost make a face you almost like oh how, how'd that one going or you see some of these shots that you put up and it, it's almost magical in a way uh explain that to us explain explain those emotions on the court yeah I think um coming back for a fifth year I'm really just trying to have fun like you never know with COVID and stuff like that the season really could end at any time so when you get like a fun shot that like you really don't think should have went in goes in and you're like oh well I guess like you get the friendly role after playing for so long but I don't know the bench is great we had so such great bench energy and it's really fun to like look at your teammates and just like have a good time but yeah sometimes the shots go in you're like how did that go in but we'll take it you mentioned your tenure here and 15 all time as the thousand point scorer here for Ithaca College. How does it feel to put up a thousand in your collegiate career? Yeah, it feels really great. I mean, coming back for this fifth year, like I really wanted to make the most out of it. And my the last person to get it was Cassie O'Malley, a girl I played AAU with for years. So it's fun to like follow suit behind her and really lead this team. And I think I've done a great job. And it's glad it's good to like get your name remembered at a program I love so much. And I don't know, it was definitely really fun. It was fun to celebrate with everyone. And I'm glad we haven't lost yet in 2022. And I really hope we can keep that going. Thank you so, so much. Really appreciate it. Congratulations once again. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jaden. The very next day against Union proved to be a little tougher for Dan Raymond's team. Union led at the break 25-24, but a big third quarter for Ithaca gave them a 40-32 lead at the end of the third stanza. A late effort from Union, however, resulted in a tie game with under five minutes to go. Ithaca was able to hold the Dutch women off courtesy of a couple of clutch buckets from Grace Cannon to walk away with a 7-point 54-47 victory. Senior Kara Volpe had a career day with 18 points. WICB sideline reporter Jaden Becker talked to Volpe following the win. 
here Carrie Volpe after a fantastic game if I do say so myself a career high for you on the court today how does it feel coming after this one it feels awesome I mean I think we started out a little slower than we normally do so I think our energy coming out in the second half was huge especially for me I was not losing on our home court so and I think together collectively we all were like come on let's do this we got this yeah, I love that attitude as well. He said, I'm not going to lose on this court. Not here at Ben Light, especially coming after a back-to-back. How does that affect this team here uh, after a back-to-back? Is this something a little bit extra stretching or something like that you guys have to do to get ready? Um, I mean, I think it's all mentally. Physically, we're prepped for this. We run a lot in practice, so we're used to, like, high-paced stuff. But I think it just it, we were all talking about it. We're just mentally tough, and I think that's what pushed us to win this game. Do you consider yourself a leader on this team? I think so, and I think with the mental stuff i like to get everyone together and just say we got this come on we got it like don't worry about it stuff like that yeah big season coming ahead for you still got a lot of games left what's your goal for this team moving forward so our motto right now is the biggest game of the year is the next game so tuesday we have a big game against uh at a league play so we just got to win that one and then next game we'll win that one it's just one after the other thank you so much yeah no problem the Bombers currently sit at 12-3 overall with an 8-1 conference record, which is tied for first in the Liberty League. Their next battle is this Tuesday in their final non-conference game of the regular season against the 21st-ranked St. John Fisher Cardinals. You can catch that game right here on WICB. Tip-off is at 7 p.m. Staying on the hardwood, the Ithaca men's basketball team had a sweep of their own this weekend, also taking down Skidmore and Union. Friday night was a physical battle for the Bombers with over 50 combined fouls from both teams. The Thoroughbreds raced out to a 13-6 lead midway through the first half and maintained that gap until Ithaca went on a 12-5 run to briefly take the lead before both teams headed into the locker room gridlocked at 30 points apiece. With the game tied at 59 in the final furlong with just over five minutes to play, Zach Warwick hit a three that put the Bombers ahead of the Thoroughbreds for good, with Ithaca scoring their final 11 points from the free throw line. Skylar Sinan led the Bombers on the scoreboard with 25 points. Tristan Winterston and Logan Wendell were also in double figures. Less than 24 hours later, the Bombers rode their momentum into a blowout. 87-58 wire-to-wire victory over Union. Center Jack Stern scored the first five Bomber points, and they did not look back. Junior Liam Spellman also had a double-double of his own. Ithaca had five players score in double figures. The Bombers' next contest is this Tuesday against 23rd-ranked RPI as the Bombers look to join the Engineers atop the Liberty League. You can catch that game right here on WICB. Tip-off is at 5 p.m. Moving over to gymnastics, the Ithaca College gymnastics team competed in their second meet of the season in a quad meet with Cortland, Springfield, and Yersinus. Ithaca finished second overall. Zoe Kiriakopoulos posted IC's high score on the beam with 9.4, which resulted in a tie for fifth. Julia O'Sullivan turned in a 9.3, while Azen Tung was awarded 9.2 in her first competition of the season. The Bombers will host their first meet of the season against Brockport in a duel on January 30th. To the track, the Ithaca College women's track and field team competed in their second meet of 2022 at Lehigh University to compete in the Moravian University indoor meet on Saturday. Ithaca posted six first-place finishes during the event. Tia Jones won the 200 and was the runner-up in the 60-meter dash to highlight the day, while Ariana Bernard won the weight throw. Paloma DeMonte won the 800 and ran the final leg on the first-place 4x400-meter relay team. The Bombers travel to Rochester next Saturday, January 29th, to take part in the Nazareth Indoor Conference Challenge Cup. 
On the men's side, the Ithaca College men's track and field team also competed in their second meet of 2022 as the Bombers again traveled to Lehigh University to compete in the Moravian University indoor meet on Saturday afternoon. Ithaca posted four first-place finishes on the day, including a school record performance by dual athlete Jalen Leonard Osborne in the 60-meter dash. Leonard Osborne clocked a time of 6.83 seconds to surpass his old-school standard of 6.91 seconds, which he set on March 6, 2021. Over the course of the day, IC recorded 15 top five finishes. The Bombers, like the women's team, travel to Rochester next Saturday on January 29th to take part in the Nazareth Indoor Conference Challenge Cup. Let's look at some scores from the East Hill this past weekend. Despite being outshot 34-20, the Big Red men's hockey team upset top-rate Quinnipiac on a Ben Berard overtime goal. The game-winning goal was Berard's second on the day. Ian Shane made 33 saves in between the pipes. On the hardwood, Cornell women's basketball fell to Harvard by a score of 47-89. The Big Red got outscored 31-4 in the first quarter. Staying on the floor, the Cornell men's hoops defeated Harvard 76-61. Despite being down five at halftime, the Big Red outscored the Crimson 44-24 in the second half. Moving to the ice, Cornell women's hockey fell to Yale by a score of 4-1. Sophomore forward Lily DeLiandis scored her team-leading ninth goal of the season to help Cornell women's hockey team jump out to a first-period lead against a nationally-ranked opponent on Saturday, but Yale responded with four unanswered goals to secure a 4-1 victory. Grad student Lindsey Browning made 28 saves and largely kept Cornell 7-8-1 overall and 5-5-1 in the ECAC in the game, but Yale was able to capitalize on odd man situations to bring the Big Reds' three-game winning streak to a close. Staying on the East Hill, Cornell women's head coach Doug DeRoe is getting ready to depart for Beijing as an assistant coach for the Canadian women's hockey Olympic team. DeRoe started with Team Canada in 2012 and looks to be a part of the team following a heartbreaking loss in 2018 to the United States to bring the gold back to the Great White North. WICB Sports Director Matt Sossler has more. Thank you, Dane. The 2022 Winter Olympics are right around the corner, and no team is seeking redemption more than the Canadian women's hockey team who fell just short of a gold medal in 2018. I'm Matt Sossler, and I am privileged to be joined by Team Canada's women's hockey assistant coach and Cornell head coach, Doug Dara. And coach, first off, thank you so much for joining me during a busy time getting ready for the games and during the heart of the Cornell season. And we're going to start off on the East Hill here. The Big Reds started off the season a little bit slow, but have seemed to right the ship. Reflect on the season so far up until this point. Yeah, I would agree with your assessment. Uh, we started off uh, a little slow. I mean, you know, basically when you've got 14 freshmen that have, have never played college hockey and, um, you know, are getting used to the college game, and it's not to make excuses, but it took them a little bit of time, I think, to to adjust and, uh, and learn how we play the game. And, uh, and so I, I felt like, you know, we've continually improved throughout the season and, and have gotten better uh, each month. So uh, hopefully that'll uh, continue in 2022 as well. Yeah, now shifting gears towards the Olympic Games, Cornell is very well represented in Beijing. You have a plethora of former players that will be taking the ice. What does it mean to have a lot of former Cornellians compete in the biggest international competition that there is? Yeah, no, it's it's always exciting when your players get an opportunity to uh, 
compete in the Olympics. It's you know it's the pinnacle of, of women's hockey since there's no there is some professional hockey, but I think most young women uh, aspire. Their ultimate goal is to is to play in the Olympics and to have. Uh, we had we had six players that were centralized. We have four players uh, competing for for Canada, and then we also have uh, one that's competing for Czechoslovakia uh, as well. So um, so we'll have five, but uh, but yeah, no, it's very exciting to see your players develop and improve and and make it to the 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 pinnacle of women's hockey yeah and staying on that track multiple former cornell players on team canada and given that you've coached those players in the college ranks they know your system that you run at cornell i'm not entirely sure if the system that goes down in team canada is similar or different than what you do at Cornell, but just being together, knowing these players, their instincts, what their strengths and weaknesses are, how does that help you out when you go to the games to have players who played under you earlier at Cornell? Yeah, I think, you know, I've been with Team Canada since 2011, I believe it is. Um, So I've been with them now for for over 10 years, and certainly uh, it's helped me as a coach to develop and um, certainly you learn a lot from those experiences and uh, many of those concepts and experiences we, we brought to Cornell um, we don't do everything exactly as Team Canada does um, plays their game but certainly there's a lot of similarities and uh, hopefully that has helped our players adapt from going from the game at Cornell to uh, playing uh, with their national teams. And so, um, you know, you always, when you have players at Cornell that aspire to that, you know, it's getting them to understand that even though they may dominate at the college level, to play at this level, it's it's a whole uh, another game. And uh, they need to understand that going through college hockey, that, they need to continue to improve and continue to get better, even though they may be the quote-unquote stars in, in, in college ranks. Yeah, now shifting to the competition. Before we look forward to Beijing, uh, got to take a look back at 2018. Team Canada losing a heartbreaker to Team USA in a shootout. How has that motivated the group heading into the next games? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously that was heartbreaking for for Canada and you know the players certainly um, have used that as, as motivation over this over these four years and, and coming back to uh, this Olympics it's always uh, great it's always been a great rivalry between Canada and the US and now some of the other countries are also uh, showing great strides and have become uh, competitive as well so it's not just uh, Canada and the USA anymore, but certainly um, that's been a great rivalry over the years, and it's great to see women's hockey in general growing globally and, and the other teams um, raising their level as well and, and making it um, very competitive all around. Yeah, you've mentioned the competitive nature. One thing that I did want to 
talk about here for a little bit is that this Olympic cycle has been like no other, especially when you're dealing with a massive international competition, COVID having different restrictions in different places. How has the COVID pandemic impacted how you guys have prepped for these games? Yeah, I mean, I think um, there's been a lot of ways that it's affected the entire hockey community at, at, at this level you know the world championships uh, last year uh, were postponed and then we had to play them uh, in August of of this past year and you know, there's a lot of things that needed to be done in that regard as you know it's quarantining and testing and going into bubbles and um, doing everything that each program could do and that each tournament could do to ensure a safe environment. And so with that, there's a lot of adjustments that need to be made from all programs. Um, so it's, but I think at this point, you know, having gone through it for a long period of time now, um, it seems like, you know, you just roll with it day by day. Um, and, you know, you, you, for lack of better word, we've gotten comfortable, I guess, with, you know, having to be in bubbles, wearing masks, getting vaccinated, getting tested on a regular basis. And it's just uh, been part of our lives for the last uh, year and a half. Yeah, and obviously the ultimate goal this year is to be on top of that podium once again. But are there any other goals that you have for this team? Well, that's that's always the goal for for Canada is to get to, uh, to come back with the gold. And, um, but you know, it's, it's also process and making sure that we're focused on uh, the day by day process of getting better. Just like we talked about at, at Cornell, you know, got off to a, a rough start at Cornell, and we're looking to improve each and every week. And we felt like we've uh, been able to do that over the the course of the season and same thing right now here it's looking to improve each and every day there's only you know a couple weeks till we go so it's um really being focused uh, on the details and practice and on the execution and practice so that um that once we get to the tournament we're we're at the top of our game and that we're also improving with each game throughout the tournament the olympics as well to put ourselves in the best possible position um going into the the end of the tournament yeah in order to accomplish that you guys have a very tough group stage competing against the likes of the united states finland switzerland and the russian olympic committee just in group play before even getting to the knockout stages but how does having a tough group like that pay off for what will hopefully uh, be a successful knockout stage yeah i think anytime you know it's again i'll go back to my cornell experience it's try to get the toughest opponents in our non-conference schedule that, that we can get because we know that that's going to prepare us uh, for the playoffs as, as, as best we can and so um, I think same thing in the Olympics sometimes you know when an opponent maybe isn't as strong you get away with some things that lead to some bad habits and so um, and no matter how much you may stress it in practice and you may stress it in your meetings, um, there's nothing like playing in competitive games to 
uh, really bring that out in the open and and show you what's necessary to be successful. Yeah, and now shifting things back to the East Hill before we wrap things up. Uh, when everybody returns from Beijing, it'll be end of the regular season, getting ready for the playoffs. What are some of the goals for the Big Red for the rest of the way? Well, like we, we talked about earlier, you know, it's again trying to stay focused on, on the process and making sure that we're improving each and every week before uh, the end of the season. So, you know, and right now it's if we do that, like it'll give us a chance first of all to make the playoffs in the ECAC that's going to be obviously first and foremost you need to get into the top eight to to make the playoffs so that's the and then you know trying to get yourself into the best possible position to start the playoffs and also to be playing your best hockey at that time you know it's uh, if we do keep improving each and every week then we know that we'll be playing our best hockey of the of the year uh, when it matters the most. And so right now that's uh, what we're trying to do. Yes, the goal is to be playing your best hockey at the right time. Coach, thank you so much for joining us here on WICB Sports Talk. Good luck in Beijing and back on the East Hill. Thank you. Thank you very much. Team Canada will open play on February the 2nd against 2014 bronze medalist Switzerland. For WICB Sports, I'm Matt Sossler. Thanks so much, Matt. Congrats to Coach DeRoe on 300 wins as his Big Red will have to continue to fight through a rough season without him as they host number 10 Clarkson on Tuesday at Lina Rink. The tough slate continues for the women as they travel to Princeton and Quinnipiac this weekend. Again, the women sit at 7-8-1 overall and are clinging to the final spot in the ECAC tournament as of right now. As for the men's hockey team, as said before, fresh off a thrilling 2-1 overtime win over number one ranked Quinnipiac, they'll once again have the home confines of Lina Rink as they face off against two Ivy League foes in Harvard and Dartmouth. Men's hockey isn't the only Big Red team inside the top 15. Cornell Wrestling sits at 6-2 this season and number 12 in the country. They face off against Columbia and the United States Naval Academy for a try-me on Saturday afternoon at Friedman Wrestling Center. And now let's take a look at the upcoming week in Ithaca College Athletics. In addition to their pivotal contest against RPI on Tuesday, Ithaca men's basketball will also battle Hobart in Geneva this Friday. The Bombers dethroned the Statesman earlier this season, 91-85. 24 hours later, they will have a rematch with the RPI engineers in Troy, New York. Ithaca women's basketball following their non-conference duel with St. John Fisher on Tuesday night will take on William Smith College this Friday. The Bombers clipped the Herons 82-52 earlier this month. The Bombers will also travel to RPI on Saturday as they look for the season sweep over the Engineers. Ithaca men's and women's track and field will travel to Nazareth College this weekend in the Nazareth Indoor Conference Challenge Cup. Both teams look to build off strong outings from this past weekend. And lastly, IC Wrestling. This upcoming weekend will have a trio of matches versus Stevens, the College of New Jersey, and Crosstown foe Cornell. Lastly, both swimming and diving teams will take on Union this Saturday as both teams look to build off strong performances from this past week. That'll do it for this week's episode of Sports Talk, in which we got to check in on some of the recent milestones. We talked to Carl Ravitch about his recent assignment to play-by-play -play of Sunday Night Baseball and Doug DeRoe about his expectations for Team Canada in the Winter Olympics in Beijing. Be sure to check out Bombers Radio Net on Twitter for all the latest news and updates regarding our coverage of Ithaca College Athletics. I'm Dane Richardson, and have a great rest of your Sunday night.